0: 1 Corinthians 6, verses 1 to 11. Um, If you do have a Bible, do open that up. Um, It's good to read that along together. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to the law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud, even your own brothers. Or do you know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor adulterers, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God." And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and by the spirit
1: of our God. Uh, good morning, everyone. My name's Thomas., oh, I actually got a good morning for a change. My name's Thomas, I'm one of the elders. Um, this is our last Sunday looking um, spending time in First Corinthians this year. Uh, we'll be back, don't worry. Um, Next week we start <clears throat> season of Advent, um, and for those of you who aren't familiar, Advent is uh, Advent is this time when we focus um, on the duality of Jesus coming. We celebrate His incarnation in the first place, um, but we also celebrate and look forward to and anticipate His second coming. It's one of it's become wasn't something that I was particularly aware of before. Um, I was part of Village, but it's been become uh, a, a, my favorite season. And interestingly, the church calendar begins with Advent. Um, and I think there's something important about that. There's something symbolic about that that our church year, our days, our lives begin with this expectation begin with anticipation, begin with a longing for the return of Christ. So keep that in your mind um, as we come together next Sunday and um, you have full permission to say Happy New Year to one another. There's Laura. Welcome back, Laura. Lovely to have you here. Two returning folks from That's lovely. Great. Okay, on to the text. The Corinthian problems just seem to be keep stacking up, don't they? Uh, this chapter considers... How believers are to relate to one another when someone has been wronged. And I suppose the biggest question posed here is how does a gospel shaped community handle disputes and grievances between believers? As is often the way Paul shows us how not to respond. Um, So just a quick background on the text. I've no doubt what pops out here, the list of transgressions in 9 and 10. uh, We'll get to that. Um, the, The main thrust of this passage is an address to the community about how they are to handle internal family disputes when a member of the community has a grievance against another member. Rather than handling the issue internally, the church has allowed the problem to escalate and the church members are now sorting it out in public. Thomas, I hear you say, I haven't sued any of my Christian brothers and sisters ever. And yeah, that's cool. Let's just jump to communion right now then. Um, Paul's really getting at how we understand ourselves, how we understand our community, how we understand our relationships, regardless of the legal character of a given situation. Paul instructs the church not to handle these. uh, Paul instructs the church to handle these issues internally, Let me be clear on what I'm not saying. This doesn't imply that all things that happen within the church are necessarily in-house issues. Too many times the church has made the mistake of handling issues in-house that required the intervention of an authority. Embezzlement, abuse, sexual misconduct, any matter with actual legal ramifications, Paul would have called for the intervention of authorities. And just to be clear, so would and so will we. The scope of the passage then is limited to intra-church disputes that don't need to be elevated outside the community. Paul's logic in this passage uh, is, is a challenge to them, n- not just on not suing, it's, but on who they believe themselves to be. Paul challenges, along, Paul challenges them along the lines of their identity. So he invites them to consider their identity before like, suggesting some of the challenges um, faced in this crisis of their identity. And then thirdly, he leads them on towards a recovery of their identity. Three lovely points. Each one with three points. Uh, that makes nine. Uh, so your little scripture journals should have plenty of space. You don't need to worry about making too many mistakes. Should even be enough space in case I come out with like, some sweet one-liners that are worth tweeting. Probably not. Uh, let me pray before we move on. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that it is your words. I thank you for, as much as anything, the variety that it contains, the, the beautiful, wide-ranging declarations of your character that we could spend ages on, and then also the, the, maybe the more minute details of what it means to be your people in relationship with one another, Holy Spirit, lead us, guide us, teach us. I don't change hearts, you do. I am weak, you're strong. Maybe be aware of uh, your convicting, loving kindness speaking to us this morning through your words. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so first up, the first four, first four verses revolve around a number of questions that Paul poses to the Corinthians in order to get them to consider their identity. Uh, So despite the fact that there are serious issues in the church, and like we mean serious as we saw last week, uh, Paul sees them as no less set apart by God, and he wants to remind them of their identity as God's community. It's only from that perspective that they will see the absurdity of what's happening between the family members. So in verse 1, uh, we look at uh, the scripture. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? So God has set the Corinthian believers apart, and He has made them holy. They have an identity as God's saints. The church is to be a community that conducts its family affairs in a way that is that, that are not shaped by the brokenness of the culture in which it exists. An identity as God's saints means that we are to display an alternative way of doing life. God's justice system runs differently than the world's. And the church is to be the one place where that is, on, is supposed to be on display. Paul wants them to consider what their identity is, who they are in Christ, as they contemplate an intra-church issue what handling disputes and grievances. He says, you are saints, Jump back to the start of the book in 1 Corinthians, in the first chapter of this letter, in verse 2. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. At the start of the letter, we're called to be saints, from the beginning, reminding us that we are sanctified. Believers are called out as part of the church. That's what the word church means in Greek, ecclesia, to be called out. We have been set apart. We are the holy ones. And again, I hear you saying, but Thomas, I don't like feel called out. I don't feel super holy. I know, but I rarely do too. But we're not holy in the sense that we are morally perfect, but in the sense that we have been objectively settled as his people. Set apart to be his saints, although we struggle with our own experience of being subjectively flawed. So Paul is saying that the creation's identity as a saint is that of someone who has been set apart. Not set apart from other individuals, set apart as a community, as a people set from death into life. So first, Paul wants them to consider their identity as God's saints. And then secondly, Paul wants them to consider their identity as God's future community. From verse 2, Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more then matters pertaining to this life? So, Paul gives us this mysterious glimpse into the future, the way of things at the end of time. When God sets the world right, when he balances the scales of justice, he will include those whom he has made right, those he has justified in the process. Um, I'm not afraid to say this bit is not clear. Uh, just, I, I, a good theological answer sometimes is I don't know. Uh, And it's because this bit doesn't really get talked about very much. Paul doesn't address it in any other letter. Um, But to some degree, it seems like we're involved in the process of judgment. Um, I'm okay saying I don't know. I'm okay with saying we'll find out when we get there. Um, And I'm, I'm afraid you'll have to be too. It is in line with the rest of the scriptural mandate. Right In the beginning in Genesis, we're given this creation mandate. Go and fill the earth, subdue it, create culture. That's what's given to us. That's the creation mandate. And then we get to the great commission and that changes slightly, but instead of filling the world with culture, we'll fill the world with disciples. Go into all the world, make disciples. And it seems it's going along the right step to see that at some point, maybe we'll be involved in a judgment. I don't know how that works. The point is that justice in the church, how we deal with our issues, should be superior to the system of justice in the world. Which is 100 percent what is happening already all the time in church, right? I mean, it's not like we're no—we're not known for like backstabbing or gossiping or slandering or anything. Unfortunately, the church has had that reputation at times, uh, and these are all denials of the reality of God's work in our midst, and are, uh, these are all out of accord with the beautiful Shalomic. Future to which he has called us, this word shalom, a beautiful Hebrew word meaning peace and prosperity, a sense of rightness. Christians have, shared, have a shared identity as God's future community that will be given rights and responsibilities to judge the world. And as, when it says judge, you already know this. It simply means to assess, to evaluate with the skills of justice. It doesn't mean being judgmental. Um, we just covered that a lot in the Sermon on the Mount. You're all good on this. You know this all very well already. So thirdly, Paul talks about our identity as God's present community. We are called to be gospel-shaped. So in verse 4, Paul talks about our our identity as God's present community. So if you have such cases, why why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? A family ought to be able to handle its own business. When a brother brings a lawsuit against another brother, it's a sign that something has gone tragically wrong. And Paul isn't calling for anything radical here. He's just calling for the church to handle its own business in line with the gospel. They are individuals who've been made right with God, and as a result, they ought to make things right with one another. Despite the fact that God has given this identity to his church, we are prone to live in ways that are counter to our identity. God views us one way, but we choose to reshape our own identities around the things that please us, that comfort us, that excite us. So there's a crisis of identity, a case of gospel amnesia, which lead us to acting like non-saints. Aints, if you will. You got saints and you got ants. That's what it says in the Bible. In effect yeah my my paraphrasing absolutely so uh we are presented with a consideration of our identity from verse 5 to 10 Paul moves on to this idea of this this looking at a crisis of our identity I say this to your shame in verse 5 can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers but brother goes to law against brother and that before unbelievers to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not, suffer? Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. So, in terms of the lawsuit Paul's talking about, we have no idea what the grievance is. Uh, We are led to believe, though, that that this is not actually a serious matter that we should have ended up that should have ended up in court. Paul views the plaintiff's actions. uh, Plaintiff being. the one who brings the lawsuit. Is that right, Steve? Solid. I watch enough legal drama to know this stuff. Um, So Paul views the plaintiff's actions as wrong um, and defrauding a brother in Christ. Uh, The matter is an internal family dispute. Paul shames the parties by pointing out the fact that they are what in verse 8? Brothers. So when we talk about church's family that's that's not just this nice little phrase that we've come up with. There's examples the whole way throughout Scripture that God's people are family and we deal with issues like family. So rather than handling a family matter in-house, they've taken it to the law court of the city in the center of the marketplace. Essentially, they're saying to the entire city of Corinth that they don't believe that the gospel has enough resources to overcome grievances. And Here's the irony. In chapter 5, just that we looked at last week, we encountered a community that was unwilling to deal with the internal issue of incest in their midst, and they avoided judging a prominent member inside their community, even while judging those outside the community. So then in in chapter 6, the irony is continued. We find that the Corinthians being completely inconsistent with how they handle their issues. Now they're judging a member inside their community, but rather than handling it inside, they're turning the case over to those on the outside, which I suspect leaves Paul face-palming at their stupidity. So there's a crisis of identity. And the first one, an individual identity crisis. The questionable nature of the lawsuit calls the individuals into question. (laughs) Good turn of phrase, Thomas. Uh, Why would the case have ended up in court? The legal system in Corinth wasn't used so much to seek justice as to establish one's status, one's honor, and one's position in society. The courts were often used by the fortunate to tread upon the less than fortunate. The court was a quick way to move up the ranks, to establish one's supremacy over another the reason that this situation is so shocking is not simply because it's a legal dispute it's shocking because one brother in Christ is seeking to get one up seeking to one up his brother in Christ in the unrighteous world by treading on that brother so the plaintiff is willing to wrong and defraud his brother in Christ for some gain in the eyes of the world the one bringing the lawsuit has forgotten his identity in the gospel and is seeking to build his identity along Corinthian culture's lines of honor, of wisdom, and strength. All values that the Corinthians held very right dear. He's forgotten the gospel and is working against the grain of the gospel in an attempt to attain what only the gospel can give him. In 1982, uh, Warren Berger, the chief justice of the USA at that time, said this. One reason our courts have become overburdened is that Americans are increasingly turning to the courts for relief from a range of personal distresses and anxieties. Remedies for personal wrongs that were once considered the responsibility of institutions other than the courts are now boldly asserted as legal entitlements. The courts have been expected to fill the void created by the decline of the church, family, and neighborhood. What were once... um, we don't do this because we believe that we have certain, certain legal entitlements and rather than trying to take care of an intra-neighborhood, an intra-family, an intra-church dispute or grievance, by speaking the truth in love, by keeping each other accountable and responding in gracious tones, we bring it to the courts and we abuse the legal system in the process. Uh, there was a buy one, get one free on Supreme Court quotes this week, so here's a second one. Um. Antonin Scalia, Scalia, who I think only recently passed away, said this about this passage, which is remarkable in itself. I think this passage, um, uh, sorry, this uh, judge was um, a committed Catholic, but as we'll see, I think there's something in this for us. Uh, I think this passage has something to say about proper Christian attitude towards civil litigation. Paul's making two points He says that the mediation of a mutual friend, such as a parish priest, or as we might believe, the priesthood of all believers, um, should be sought before parties run off to the law courts. I think we are too ready today to see vindication or vengeance through adversarial proceedings rather than peace through mediation. Good Christians, just as they are slow to anger, should be slow to sue. Uh, this is helpful for everyone, regardless of faith commitments, Christians or not. Everyone can use the wonderful principles that Jesus outlined for us in Matthew 18. Namely, do not simply take somebody to court immediately, but rather engage in private discussions. Speak the truth in love. Maintain accountability. Admonish with the spirit of gentleness because we're seeking welfare and reconciliation. I'm not sure if you've ever tried admonishing with a spirit of criticism. I'm sure it didn't get you very far. So the church can actively encourage forgiveness and promote reconciliation by accepting what we have done wrong, whereas the adversarial process will encourage us to focus on what we have done right. If we take it to the legal level, our advocate or our attorney will tell us that we need to emphasize what we have done right, and what the other person has done wrong. But that then leaves both parties with a distorted view of reality. They begin to think, I've always done right and I've never done wrong. And that person has always done wrong and never done right. But in contrast, the church can point people to Christ through whom we are able not only to talk about awarding, uh, for example, money damages or transferring property or enforcing a contract, but are also able to resolve disputes by encouraging one another to develop creative solutions. We do this, we distort reality every time we take a brother or sister to the court of public opinion. All our divisions are based in selfish attempts to get a leg up, to shore up our identity, our status, to show that we are superior by any means necessary. Secondly, there's a communal identity crisis. The very existence of a lawsuit calls not just those people involved in the lawsuit, but the entire community into question. Paul implies that rather than living like a community of saints, the Corinthian church is living just like the surrounding culture. He makes this clear by issuing them with a stark warning in verses 9 and 10. Note. Uh, let's read it here. Uh, or do you not know that the uh, sorry? Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor vilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Note that these are not simply actions these people commit. Paul is using these as identities. Now, some of these sins pop out to us more than others. It could be said that Christians have ceased to view sins like greed and reviling as serious offenses, but Paul knows nothing of a hierarchy of sin. The things that bother us most in this list are those relating to the way we use our bodies. Stephen Um, uh, whom I have relied on a lot for his approach and his understanding of this text, uh, he He suggests that this is because Christians generally have what's called a Gnostic approach. Gnostics believed um, that what you know, what you knew, was enough to save you. Almost disregarded the implications of that on the physical body. So Christians sometimes have this Gnostic approach to spirituality in which the body can be used for whatever is desired. Paul lists sexual immorality, adultery, homosexuality as some examples. Sexual immorality is heterosexual believer that is out of accord with God's good design for sex within the context of marriage between a husband and wife. Adultery is a breaking of the covenant that represents God's design for sex. And lastly, Paul mentions the sin of homosexuality, another divergence from God's design for human sexuality. When you find your identity in any idol... In money and work and relationship and what you consume, even in your own sexuality or your sexual ethic, it leads to personal and communal breakdown. It doesn't just affect you, it affects those around you. So, Paul is calling the Corinthians to live lives in step with the identity they have been given in Christ. And what Paul diagnoses them with is this case of gospel amnesia or gospel forgetfulness. This is the core issue. So ultimately, Corinthians are not conducting themselves as though their God-given—sorry—ultimately the Corinthians are conducting themselves as though their God-given identity is of no importance. They are forgetting the gospel. They are failing to be what they are. They are saints, but they're acting like non-saints. They are righteous, but living as though they were unrighteous. And the result is that their community, which is to be a present glimpse of the future community, that God intends for the world, has, this community has nothing to offer. They have no means of displaying the gospel that shapes the community. So how do you overcome a gospel identity crisis? How do you overcome gospel amnesia? Where do you find the resources to be able to handle family grievances in the context of the church? We get to the third bit. Paul talks about, the, discusses a recovery of their identity. Firstly, he points to the beauty of the gospel. When we lapse in our identity, the answer is not to learn a new one, right? If I tell my kids off, if my kids have done wrong, it's not their job to go and find other parents, The job is to relearn who they are. Our job is to relearn who we are already. And because our identity isn't ours to form, remember, it's a gift, it has been formed for us. So in what is our identity grounded? Our identity in Christ allows us to absorb the blows because Christ absorbed them on our behalf. There's two parts to this, sort of, this idea of recovery of, of identity. Um, the second part of verse 7. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? So this only makes sense if you've got nothing to lose. If suffering wrong is not an ultimate threat to you, if being defrauded is not a loss to you, you've got nothing to lose. Suffering wrong and being defrauded are not ultimate grievances because Christ bore the ultimate grievances in our place. He endured the wrong that we ought to have endured. He was defrauded of what was rightfully his in order to give us what we never deserved. So if Christ absorbed all our wrongs, if he absorbed all our attacks, if he absorbed all our rejection then when, the same of, when others do the same to us, we can practice gospel memory in place of gospel amnesia. And this gives us the resources to absorb the blows from others. And that's what forgiveness is about. And we use the word practice here very deliberately. You practice that which doesn't come natural to you. So I don't need to practice vegging out And eating copious amounts of junk food on my sofa while watching Netflix—that comes very natural to me. But as a new creation, and as being born again, that which we are, uh, we have to practice this new way of life we've been given. And that those practices take a number of forms. You being here now is is one of those practices. um, Regular attendance with a local body of Christ, committing to that body. Singing praises, listening to the word proclaimed, taking communion, prayer, these are all regular practices. It takes practice to come to terms with being wronged. It is not a natural thing. It takes practice to come to terms with being defrauded. It's not easy. But if our Jesus, if our Savior Jesus demonstrated that, then the onus is on us as new creations, as his followers, to take up our cross in that same way. That is what the Christian pursuit of reconciliation is all about. Suffering wrong and being defrauded are not ultimate grievances because Christ bore the ultimate grievances in our place. He has pursued reconciliation and brought the perfect balance of being able to demand justice and hand out grace all at the same time. This changes everything about how we understand justice and reconciliation. Grace and justice are perfectly balanced in the heavenly law court. There's something about grace and justice, we don't know how that works. There's a part of us we don't want grace to infiltrate our courts. But yet we want grace applied to us when we've done wrong. And we see this balance, this beautiful balance of justice and grace in in heaven, in Jesus. We, We don't simply demand justice and we don't simply hand out grace, but because of the work of Christ, justice and grace meet perfectly. The mystery of the gospel is that God is both perfectly just and perfectly gracious to forgiving sinners. The church ought to be the one place on earth where people can glimpse this beautiful balance at work. So Paul encouraged us to remember the beauty of the gospel. And we also then grasp the resources of the gospel. So we were washed and the filth of sin has been removed. We are cleansed. We can stop trying to hide our sins and brokenness because it has objectively been dealt with. Christians have the essential fuel for honest reconciliation. We were sanctified. Look at, uh, where is it? Uh, verse 11. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified. We are free. The grip of sin has been released. We don't have to live under the illusion that, it's, uh, that sin will ultimately win the day. We are free then to pursue joyful obedience by the power of the Spirit. So we are accepted, but not only does he want us to remember, he wants us to grasp the resources of the gospel. I'll read again, verse 11. And such with some of you that you were washed. Listen to that tense. It's crucial. It's past tense. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So because of all that, because you were justified, because the grip of sin has been released, the identity of sin on your life has been replaced. So what does that mean? What are the implications for an individual who's been wronged? Forgiveness, even though this is not what Paul is emphasizing here, is costly. When someone has wronged you, you can either choose to forgive or you can choose to exclude. Whether it's through elimination Through abandonment, through assimilation, rejection, or whatever, we can exclude or we can embrace. And if we are going to embrace, we can only embrace that person if we remind ourselves of the gospel that those who ought to have been excluded were embraced because of the saving work of Jesus Christ. Jesus forgave us and embraced us and brought us into the fold, into the family of God, even though, in the words of Scripture, we were children of wrath. He made us brothers and sisters and brought us into the presence of the Father. That's forgiveness. So, either we're going to reject that person and make him pay, or we're going to forgive and we're going to pay. Those are our two options. We'll either make that person pay or we can forgive them. And how do we make others pay? We slander, we gossip, we shift blame onto them. We go to the court of public opinion, maybe some cryptic tweeting. We make our case in a lot of different ways to somebody else, to a close friend maybe. Or maybe we just end up being cold towards them. Listen, we don't have to live in fear of judgment that others make of us, and we can have a right self-assessment because God has already made His final statement about where we stand in relation to Him. And that's the essential foundation for life with God and life in community. Thirdly, then, we live out the implications of the gospel. So we can absorb the cost when we've been wronged, when we've been wrong. Because a wrong done against us does not touch our identity unless we fail to believe the gospel. So if we've been financially wronged, we need to know that our net worth doesn't define us. If we've been relationally wronged, we need to know that our ultimate relationship is secure. Christ endured every imaginable wrong in order for, to win for us every imaginable right because of this we can be the ones to absorb to forgive to pursue reconciliation even when it's counterintuitive the wrong is that uh, the wrong that we commit against others become things that we freely confess and of which we sorrowfully repent the extent to which god went in order to save us the death of his son jesus shows us the extent of our sin So if we believe the gospel, then our default position will not be one of being in the right. Does that make sense? The gospel, the cross, outs everybody. Nobody gets the the privilege of saying, I was right. So instead, we're open to the possibility that we may be wrong. That you have been wrong and are probably likely to be wrong again. We will not pursue self-protection and dishonorable gain when we live in light of the gospel. Instead, we will admit our weaknesses and our propensity to drop the ball <laughs> often. The Christian community takes sin seriously, but it handles it graciously. We don't overlook when wrong is done We're called to be a community that reflects God's good, shalomic intentions for the world. This means that we we don't pass over wrongdoing in our midst. But it also means we don't crush people for the wrong that they've done. The church is a court like no other. Justice is served when grace is extended. Repentant perpetrators are forgiven, radically broken individuals are restored. We fight gospel forgetfulness and identity crisis by pressing one another into the gospel, into who we are in Jesus. In every aspect of the life of our church, as we confront ourselves with the realities of who we are in Christ, when we consider the identity that we have in Christ, even the most dramatic identity crisis cannot cause us to forget who we are. The Christian life is a process of remembering our true identity and striving to live in line with it by the way of the resources provided in the gospel. We are prone to wander, we are quick to forget. Have we been cold to some friends? Are there certain people in our hearts that we don't want to forgive? If so, that means there's a bit of gospel amnesia setting in, and we're not embracing those others, but are excluding them or eliminating them. Like we're by eliminating it, like we're saying that they are not. Poss- it's not possible for them to receive grace. I won't administer it. The Apostle Paul is appealing to us to remember: there needs to be gospel memory. If there are to be living implications of the gospel working in our lives, if the default position is forgiveness rather than rejection, we need to remember the gospel and what Jesus has done for us. So there's a bunch of application questions we could consider here. Is is there someone with whom we have a grievance, a dispute, an issue? We need to know that forgiveness is felt before it is practiced. In other words, we must know it in our hearts. The human heart needs to have a propensity and an inclination because of the embrace of God the Father who loved us through his son, loved the sinner through his son. If a sinner has been cleansed, justified, sanctified in Christ, then the heart should be moved to want to forgive. So is there someone who needs our forgiveness? We might not even know what we haven't forgiven. Those who need our forgiveness are to be sought Unforgiven. So when we speak of practices, one of the practices that are so crucial to gospel memory is the regular taking of communion. This isn't just an empty ritual of dipping bread and wine and eating it. It is an act of gospel memory. We're reminding ourselves of who Jesus is and what he has done. So if you're a Christian, the invite for you is to come to the table and hear the words spoken over you. This is the body of Christ broken for you. Um, I encourage you to take a big bit. Um, there's a lot of it to go around. Rip it off. Dip it in the blood of Christ. Listen to the words spoken over you. This is the blood of Christ poured out for you in an act of gracious love and kindness that changed everything. This is gospel memory. This is practicing uh, the opportunity to practice something, the, the way of Jesus that tells us that we were forgiven a lot and we ought to forgive others. Uh, can I Can invite you to stand and the band to mosey on up to the stage? If you're a Christian, um, you are so welcome to this table. But I want to make it clear that the Bible is also um, pretty clear about our uh, posture as we come to this. It's, it is a meal of celebration. Um, it is a declaration of victory. But Paul, in, in other letters, uh, Paul, at a later stage in the New Testament, makes it clear that we shouldn't do it absent-mindedly. absentmindedly. Um, in fact, we are, to, we are to pursue reconciliation. So as we come, um, can I invite you to examine your own hearts, examine your minds, Uh, Maybe the Spirit has laid something, laid a person on your minds. Maybe there is somebody you need to commit to going to seek forgiveness. Maybe you've become aware of something you need to ask forgiveness for. Maybe you're on the other side of it and you've become aware that there is someone you need to forgive. I want to invite you to commit to doing that. Maybe you're someone you're being cold to, not letting back in. So um, as we come to the table, as we enjoy the, the celebration of victory, um, you make a note on your journals. Make a note on your phone. There's no judgment. If you see someone make a note on their phone, that's okay. That's good. Um, commit to forgiving. Commit to being forgiven and asking for it. Um, These are the, like, it's funny dealing with an issue like this. On the face of it, don't sue your brothers and sisters in Christ. Um, We push a little deeper. It's pushing into the very heart of what it means to do life together. That's why this is entitled the way it is. These are the nuts and bolts of what it means to live as the body of Christ. May our hearts be warmed by what Jesus has done for us. Let me pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, I thank you again for your words. I thank you for the extent of forgiveness that you have shown us, uh, that all of our sin has been paid for, uh, and that you didn't just leave us there without sin, you actually brought us into fullness of life. Uh, Father, may we grasp again the full extent of that, the weight of that, the beauty of your sacrifice, and in response, might we be a people who are quick to forgive and quick to seek forgiveness. May we be a people of, of radical grace, of generosity and spirit, of no judgmentalism. All by the power of your spirit, for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name, amen.